0: Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christogenea Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 14th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before I begin, I'd like to say that I've had hardly any time to interact with too many people. I'm trying to catch up on my forum and emails. I owe um, dozens of worthwhile people answers to various email messages that I just haven't had the time to do I am going to try to catch up on them I'm always a few thousand email messages behind anyway most of the ones I leave behind I'm not sure if it's perfect but don't require necessary answers I know I have a few dozen emails that are worthwhile of more immediate answers, I just don't have the time. It's been nearly a month since we've conducted Clifton Heiser's burial and funeral in Ohio. I want to thank everybody who took the time to attend, and they made it a very edifying community experience that's all I could say about that really it was um... we were very appreciative of all those who showed up to help see Clifton off tonight we are going to present one of Clifton's papers identifying the beast of the field part three I had begun this series on the road I believe it was on the road or just before the road trip and I will finish it over the months to come it's a total of seven parts I believe the um, Gospel of John the commentary on the Gospel of John I really do want to get back to that soon I had hoped to get back to it this week and I had all sorts of technical challenges with my a couple of my servers at Christageddia this week So that prevented me from spending the time necessary to do that. I hope to get one segment of the Gospel of John in next week, I pray, before Melissa and I hit the road again to go to eastern Tennessee, and we will probably be gone for seven days. So there won't be a break in programming. It just won't always be the Gospel of John. I hope to get at least one more segment in before we hit the road, and to get back on it as soon as we get home in early October. In my presentation last week, The Role of Faith in a Successful Insurgency, Movement, or Community, I discussed the fact that if we as Christians are going to overcome this world, then we must dehumanize our enemies referring to those who are also the enemies of Christ. They're not people, they're devils or apes as we may see tonight. While once again I cannot prove in a few statements <coughs> that all of the other non- or non-white races are among those enemies, we have proven that long ago in other presentations here at Christogenia. In brief, In the New Testament parables of Christ, there are sheep and there are goats and only one particular race of people are ever identified as sheep (coughs) while all the other so-called nations or people groups are goats. In the Revelation, the serpent sends a flood from his mouth after the woman the bride of Christ who represents the children of Israel in their reconciliation to God which is through Christ and that vision corresponds to the prophecy of Satan gathering all of the world's nations against the camp of the saints in Revelation chapter 20 those saints are the same white Christian people of God these statements only summarize the biblical proofs by which we may support our position so in last week's presentation i included material showing that it was not very long ago perhaps only a hundred and twenty years that books were printed by both poets and churchmen which debated whether the non-white races were even human as many of them had indeed considered the non-white races to be beasts or devils and not people. Then I made the assertion that the Bible already does that same thing for us, that it dehumanizes our enemies, but that I could not possibly offer all of the proofs in such a short space. While many of those proofs are found in our Pragmatic Genesis series and in other presentations, this series on the so-called beast of the field is meant to be yet another part of that proof but from a different perspective. Going back to last week's presentation, some may feel that the word insurgency was a little strong. The concept was not really aimed exclusively at Christian identity adherents, but at all of the white nationalists and casual Christian nationalists who are without a compass or still following some worldly church or some foreign or pagan religious authority while pretending to be nationalists an insurgency is generally defined as an active revolt or uprising that describes identity Christians as well as certain nationalist groups although in different ways as identity Christians we seek to revolt against the established religious sects which are neglecting the word of our God the word of our God and are lying about his covenants and the identity of his people as Christian nationalists whether we are in any particular nationalist organization or not we seek to revolt against the American Empire and all other oppressive governments of the world which are now forcing us to accept every form of perversion and corruption in open defiance and disobedience to our God. I am not now calling for open revolt but we certainly await the day that it comes which is the day that Mystery Babylon finally falls so while for now and from either perspective Christian identity or simply white or even Christian nationalist that revolt is only a spiritual battle for the hearts and minds of our people one day it shall become a real battle and we have a promise from our God that if we stay true to his word then we shall prevail so while we are an insurgency in the philosophical sense or in a philosophical sense we are also a movement because we are trying to win others of our kind over to our cause In that sense, a movement is generally defined as a group of people working together to advance their shared political, social, or artistic ideas. That is precisely what we are, even in the artistic realm, where, for example, we would dispose of the grotesque Jewish-inspired modern art, which is not art at all, in favor of our own traditional classical art, But more importantly, we know that church, in the New Testament sense of the term, should never have been separated from state. And on the other hand, the legitimate state is not a kingdom or government of man. Rather the Christian ideal of the kingdom of heaven, which we seek after, shall only be achieved once Christ is king before the eyes of all men, at least of all those who are truly men. Finally, we are a community if we come together and work together to attain to those objectives. Then, if we are serious about achieving them, we will also very naturally look after one another and care for one another in a spirit of brotherly love and cooperation whereby we may develop a common edification for all of our fellow workers which in addition to our common blood is what joins us together as members of a community for now it may be a spiritual community But the day is coming when the kingdom of heaven does become manifest, and then it will be a concrete community. The time to begin building is now, or in the end we shall not be found worthy of its rewards. The law of our God was only for the children of Israel. It was not for all races and nations, so all races and nations could not expect its protections or its benefits. There were several exceptions made for sojourners dwelling in their lands, only so that the sojourners violating the law would not lead them to sin were the sojourners required to keep the same law. These mostly concern things such as buying or selling on the Sabbath. However, not just any sojourners were ever supposed to dwell in their lands. And there were laws governing which sojourners may dwell in the lands and under what circumstances. So we read in Psalm 147, Speaking of Yahweh, he shows his word unto Jacob, and his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dwelt He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. the psalmist is actually happy and praises God because the laws and the judgments and the statutes were only for the children of Israel and for no other nation and they were not given to anyone of any other nation which made the psalmist happy even elated, elated enough to praise God the children of Israel were to be a separate and holy people as we read in Exodus chapter 19 now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel then we see again in 1 Kings chapter 8 for thou or for you did separate them meaning the children of Israel from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance as you spoke by the hand of Moses thy servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt O Lord Yahweh likewise we see that same expectation of Christians as Peter was speaking to dispersed ancient israelites in 1 peter chapter 2 but you are an elect race a royal priesthood a holy nation a peculiar people so that you should proclaim the virtues from for which from out of darkness the darkness of their captivity you have been called into the wonder of his light This concept was also expressed by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. On which account come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince, or the Lord, if you will, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. And I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the almighty prince. Then continuing in chapter 7, Paul wrote, therefore, having these promises, beloved, we must cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and of spirit, accomplishing sanctity in awe of Yahweh. In awe, or in fear, or respect of Yahweh. But the so-called people of alien races were not even to be respected. In Old English, the word fear included the concept of reverence, which, along with awe, A-W-E, is even included in many of the commonly accepted definitions for the corresponding Hebrew or Greek terms, which were typically translated as fear in our King James Version the word reverence describes a deep respect for a person or thing so to fear someone is to respect them an examination of the scriptures in this light informs us that the children of Israel were not even to respect alien peoples So we read in Numbers chapter 14. If Yahweh delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against Yahweh, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defenses departed from them, and Yahweh is with us, fear them not. The children of Israel had also been warned in Exodus chapter 23. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Reverencing or respecting these alien people is tantamount to respecting their gods it's idolatry you want to respect aliens you're engaging in a form of idolatry this would preclude even trading with the enemy trading is a form of covenant or agreement to fulfill a pledge such as to pay a price in exchange for some merchandise where it says for they are bread for us that means that they were to be completely deprived of their food and possessions and driven off of the land this is the attitude we should have to this very day even if for the time being, we have no power to exercise it in practice. I say these things this evening to reinforce some basic biblical concepts. Studying the scriptures from a Christian identity worldview for 11 years before emerging from prison and engaging with most other identity Christians I was absolutely appalled by the relaxed and even friendly attitudes that many of them had towards the non-white races. (coughs) I also thought since I understood the errors which were made by Swift and Comparais and knew that I was able to correct them, that most of my fellow identity Christians would be happy to hear that Yahweh our God did not create the non-white races as we now know them. Even as a youth, long before I learned anything like Christian identity truth, I would have been thrilled to have learned that my God did not create the niggers and spicks whom I saw as a plague upon my people. I would have been thrilled to find out that they were actually a corruption of his creation for which reason they spread corruption and cause decay wherever they are found. The truth is this by their fruits you shall know them. In the beginning of my studies I also followed and believed the errors of the earlier identity teachers, thinking that they made sense. They were indeed an improvement compared to the teachings of the Universalist churches. However, after years of deeper study, it is fully apparent that they do not make any sense, and that the Genesis heresy that God created all of the races of so-called people does not hold up when it is compared to all of the scripture. So if Yahweh did not create in his image Negroes or Orientals, or any of these other races of so-called people. You would think that the typical white Christian nationalist or identity Christian would be absolutely thrilled to hear that news. They should be overjoyed that those who hate them are not created in the image of their God. Neither did he create them as beasts and call them good. Identity Christians should be over-abundantly elated at the prospect of learning this truth. I can certainly prove that this is true, and I believe that I have on many occasions. But I am quite puzzled that even to this day many of those calling themselves identity Christians still scoff at the concept and refuse to even listen to the evidence. Evidently, as I am sometimes persuaded, these scoffers do not want to part with the lies that justify their affections for their favorite niggers. It is attested that many devils had infiltrated the old kingdoms of Israel and Judah and instigated the corruption, and it is just as evident that today we have devils among us instigating the same corruption in answer to some of those devils, Clifton Amaheiser wrote this series of essays, identifying the beast of the field. The series was inspired by some of the arguments we faced which I have just described, even from people who had originally claimed to agree with us. So Clifton had written this series relatively recently, parts 1 through 6 being done from March through November of 2010 and part 7 in June of 2012 the first six parts were to answer some of the heresies which Eli James whose real name is Joseph November was trying to introduce at that time he was one of those people who when I first got out of prison had originally claimed to agree with us This had also precipitated our ultimate split in January of 2011. Eli James had claimed that I changed my position on the other races, but that is a lie. It had, by 2010, already been at least seven years since either of us, meaning Clifton or myself, had begun proclaiming as a fact our assertion that Yahweh did not even create the non-Adamic races, at least as they are known to us today, which we began doing no later than 2003. I stated in Broken Cisterns, Part 2, a paper which Clifton had published, and I don't remember exactly when, but which was posted on the israelelect.com website, no later than 2005, that there is no record in all of Scripture of Yahweh creating the other, the non-Adamic races. Rather, he rejects them time and again, citing Matthew chapter 25. I would assert, by means of logical deduction, that the creators of the non-Adamic races are the same angels which Jude discusses here, boldly accusing those angels of fornication. Now, they really did not create those races in a biblical sense, but they created them by corrupting what Yahweh had originally created. That paper was published at least a year before Eli James wrote his first letter to me, in 2006, where he began by saying, that I have been receiving Clifton's newsletters for many years now, so let me congratulate you on the fine work you are doing for him. What a line of bullshit that was. Eli may have been receiving Clifton's material, but he could not have been reading it, or he would have understood our position on the non-Adamic races long before he ever asked me to do podcasts with him which he had done even before I got home from prison in December of 2008. So I never really expected this to be an issue between us in 2010, until Eli showed his true colors, and he made it an issue. But Eli is not the only adherent to that version of CI, which really stands for compromise identity. Quite frequently I have had the same conflict with followers of Ted Wyland, Pete Peters, Dan Gayman, and a hundred other clowns. Most of the old time identity teachers cling to the notion that Yahweh created all races, in spite of the fact that Christ Himself spoke of every plant which my heavenly father did not plant and informs us that all non sheep nations which are all non-Israelite nations, shall ultimately go into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Therefore, Yahweh could not have created them. If they share the same destiny as the devil, how difficult is that to understand? In spite of the odds against us, Clifton and I had always retained the confidence that the truth would ultimately prevail, and it shall. Understanding this concept is integral to a sound Christian nationalist worldview. If Yahweh created the races, the other races as we know them, then they must be good since everything which Yahweh created is good. But if Yahweh did not create them, and if they are indeed corruptions of His creation, then we can plainly see why, in the end, all of the goat nations are destroyed in the proverbial fire, as our Redeemer informs us in His Gospel. And then we have a firm moral foundation for our nationalism only then do we have a firm moral foundation for our nationalism because it can can be effectively argued on the other side of the coin that the scripture informs us that there is only one body of Christ if we admit niggers into the body of Christ then we must be joined to niggers That's the downfall of the Kinnist idea that there could be separate races all believing in Jesus because there's only one body of Christ. Understanding where the lines are drawn, as Christians we must therefore also acknowledge where our own allegiances should lie and what we must separate ourselves from if we are to truly please our God. Now that we have more fully recalled what heresy it was that he was attempting to answer when he wrote this, we shall present part three of Clifton Emeheiser's series Identifying the Beast of the Field. In the first two essays on this subject, I, meaning Clifton, have given substantial evidence that the biblical phrase, beast of the field, often meaning a four-footed quadruped animal, domesticated or wild, is sometimes used as a Hebrew idiom for two-legged biped creatures appearing as man or appearing to be men in that first essay I showed adequate documentation that neither Strong's Hebrew word number 2423 which is Sheva nor 2416 which is Che could support or be translated or interpreted to be a two-legged biped beast of the field at least not wherever it is used in scripture. With this paper, I will show evidence that the devil and the ape have the same name. Also, at least in Arabic, in one language, also that Satan is likened to an orangutan. To document this, I will use Adam Clark's Bible Commentary, Volume 1, pages 47 through 50 under his Notes on Chapter 3, meaning Genesis Chapter 3, and especially on the terms Nakash and Beast at Genesis Chapter 3, verse 1. I would point out, What you are about to read was edited out of Ralph Earle's abridged edition of Clark's Bible commentary, no doubt believing he was doing God and nominal churchianity a favor. Also, Clark was a master of several languages. Now, throughout his research, Clifton endeavored to to use mainstream denominational sources in order to establish the fact that our Christian identity concepts of scripture certainly can be found in at least some of them and therefore our scholarship cannot rightfully be mocked but of course Clifton himself also explained that much of the content of those same sources was in error because mostly because their authors were tainted with church dogmas and presuppositions long before they even began writing. So before he himself wrote on a subject, Clifton would pull all available sources from his bookshelves and arrange them in a neat circle on his dining room table, open to the necessary pages, and read through each one of them, one at a time, in order to find everything that they had to say which was relevant. If it was useful, He made a citation, but as he himself very often confessed, frequently the articles were not useful. Now to continue with Clifton's citation of Earl's edition of Adam Clark's commentary on Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle, and he breaks it there. Why have, I'm sorry, we have here one of the most difficult, according to Adam Clark, as well as the most important narratives in the whole book of God. The last chapter ended with a short but striking account of the perfection and felicity of the first human beings. And this opens with an account of their transgression, degradation, and ruin that man is in a fallen state, the history of the world, with that of the life and miseries of every human being, establishes beyond successful contradiction. But how, and by what agency, was this brought about? Here is a great mystery, and I may appeal to all persons who have read the various comments that have been written on the Mosaic account whether they have ever been satisfied on this part of the subject, though convinced of the fact itself? Who was the serpent? Of what kind? In what way did he seduce the first happy pair? These are questions which remain yet to be answered. The whole account is either a simple narrative of facts, or it is an allegory. If it be a historical relation, its literal meaning should be sought out. If it be an allegory, no attempt, in Clark's opinion, no attempt should be made to explain it, as it would require a direct revelation to ascertain the sense in which it should be understood. I believe that revelation is in a revelation. I don't know why Clark didn't get that. For fanciful illustrations are endless, with that I would agree. Believing it to be a simple relation of facts, capable of a satisfactory explanation, I shall take it up on this ground, and by a careful examination of the original text, endeavor to fix the meaning, which is admittedly absurd, as we shall see and show the propriety and consistency of the mosaic account of the fall of man the chief difficulty in the account is found in the question who is the agent employed in the seduction of our first parents now Clifton comments in contrary to Adam Clark it is my opinion that the story of Satan and the beast of the field are in allegory and hidden in idiomatic language, and that we will find the answers to the hidden symbolism in other passages of scripture, as in many cases the Bible explains itself. And Clifton is certainly correct. The explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13 should be the first passage one must go to which one must go to understand Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12 should be the next passage so he continues by going back to Clark the word in the text which we following the Septuagint translate serpent is Nakash and, according to Buxtorf and others, has three meanings in scripture: one it signifies to view or observe attentively, to divine, or use enchantments, because in them the augurs viewed attentively the flights of birds, the entrails of beasts, the course of the clouds, etc and under this head it signifies to acquire knowledge by experience and that's pretty important and I will comment on that a little later it signifies brass brazen and is translated in our Bible not only brass but chains, fetters, fetters of brass and in several places steel and he gives a list of verses and in one place at least Filthiness or fornication, citing Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 36, and third, the third signification of Nakash, it signifies a serpent, but of what kind is not determined. In Job, chapter 26, verse 13, it seems to mean the whale or hippopotamus And he quotes, by his spirit, he has garnished the heavens, his hand has formed the crooked serpent. That crooked serpent is the Hebrew terms, Nakash bariach. Barak signifies to pass on or pass through, and bariach is used for a bar of a gate or door that pass through the rings the idea of straightness rather than crookedness should be attached to it here and it is likely that the hippopotamus or seahorse is intended by it. I don't think it necessarily indicates straightness rather than a passing through so I don't think Clark is correct about that either. Here I must interrupt briefly In Job chapter 26, verse 12, the dividing of the sea must be a reference to the account in Exodus. In Job 26, verse 13, within the context of the reference to the heavens, the crooked serpent must be a description of the constellation Draco, or the dragon. Constellations may also be passing through. I would imagine passing through the night sky. The most ancient Egyptians also had this constellation described in their mythology. While serpent is an idiom for the devil or Satan, not every mention of a serpent in the Bible refers directly to the devil. We should also note, however, that in the portions of pragmatic Genesis which were titled primordial 2 sea line I explain that Draco the Egyptian Apophis had a part in ancient Egyptian myths as attempting to destroy the ship of the sun god Ray whereupon Ray was always successfully defended by his son Set who was called the Lord of Life. These early Egyptian myths certainly contain elements of two seed line truth, as the Egyptian culture in its earliest stages was clearly related to the Hebrew. Continuing with Clifton's citation of Adam Clarke, in Ecclesiastes chapter ten, verse eleven, the creature called Makish of whatever sort is compared to the babbler. Surely the serpent, Nackish, will bite without enchantment, and the babbler is no better. In Isaiah 27.1, the crocodile or alligator seems particularly meant by the original. In that day the Lord shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, etc. And in Isaiah 65.25, the same creature is meant, as in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, for the words, And thus shall be the serpent's meat. There is an evident allusion to the text of Moses. In Amos chapter 9, verse 3, the crocodile is evidently intended. Though they be hid in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. No person can suppose that any of the snake or serpent kind can be intended here, and we see from the various acceptations of the word and the different senses which it bears in various places in the sacred writings, that it appears to be a sort of general term confined to no one sense. And here I must interrupt again, only to state that Clark was evidently impervious to the fact that all of these scriptures are allegories referring to people within a general population of their time. For example, in Isaiah, the serpent in the sea is a reference to the seed of the serpent. The descendants of the fallen angels, which were mingled among the greater Adamic race, the sea representing the general masses of the people, the sea of people, just as it does in the Revelation. The same is true in Amos, the serpent of Amos chapter 9, verse 3, hidden in the bottom of the sea. The serpent crawling on its belly among the masses of the people, the Canaanite Jew, bottom-feeding among the general mass of the people, the lion seeking whom he may devour. Continuing again with Clifton's citation of Clarke. Hence it will be necessary to examine the root Nakash accurately, to see if its ideal meaning will enable us to ascertain the animal intended in the text. We have already seen that Nakash signifies to view attentively, to acquire knowledge or experience by attentive observation and citing Genesis chapter 30 verse 27 I have learned by experience the word nakashti and this seems to be its most general meaning in the Bible now to interrupt once more now we could see why the corrupt races propagated by the fallen angels who are the collective serpent are referred to as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that is one place where the meaning of the term Nakash leads us that's where it led Adam Clark again continuing and, and I noted here that it that race is referred to as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that is an element of the meaning of the title serpent or nakash again continuing with clark the original word is by the sethogen translated ophis a serpent not because this was its fixed determinate meaning in the sacred writings but because it was the best that occurred to the translators. And they do not seem to have given themselves much trouble to understand the meaning of the original, for they have rendered the word as variously as our translators have done, or rather, our translators have followed them, as they give nearly the same significations found in the Septuagint. Hence, we find that ofis, or ofis properly, is as frequently used by them as serpent, Ophis being, of course, the Greek word for serpent. Its supposed literal meaning is used in our version. In other words, the Septuagint translators translated Nakash into Ophis in Greek as often as the New Testament translators, or I'm sorry, the King James Version translators had translated Nakash into serpent in the English version so Clark continues and the New Testament writers whose meaning the apostles who seldom quote the Old Testament but from the Septuagint translation meaning that they never really just paraphrased Hebrew, they were using the Greek Septuagint as their base understanding of the Old Testament and often do not change even a word in their quotations. Copy this version in the use of the word. In other words to them Nikash was Ophis or a serpent. From the Septuagint therefore we can expect no light or no understanding as to what Clark claims Nikash really was nor indeed from any other of the ancient versions, which are all subsequent to the Septuagint, and some of them actually made from it. In all this uncertainty, it is natural for a serious inquirer to, after truth, to look everywhere for information. And interrupting once again, here I must agree with Clark but to add that the supposed literal translation of Nakash to serpent is indeed plainly evident in some passages such as one he cited at Job chapter 26 verse 13 so the Septuagint translators chose Ophis to represent Nakash however that does not mean that we have to limit our understanding of the term Nakash to a literal serpent wherever it is encountered. Some people have actually made that claim. Now Clark resorts to an unlikely source for further understanding, and we may want to reject it at first, but later I will endeavor to defend his choice as being significant. He says, and in such an inquiry, seeking after this real meaning of the term Nakash as he sees it, and in such an inquiry the Arabic may be expected to afford some help from its great similarity to the Hebrew. A root in this language, very nearly similar to that in the text, seems to cast considerable light on the subject. Kanas, or Kanasa, and let me say that we see this in in the King James version of the Bible especially with some of the names of the kings even in ancient Israel and Judah where we have a um, we have a swapping of syllables the syllables are reversed even though the same person is intended this happens on occasion And we seem to have that from Hebrew to Arab, where kanas is very likely the kash, but with the syllables reversed, or kanasa. And then we have a word aknas here. And that's with the syllables reversed kind of in an inverted way. And I really believe that came to happen because the Hebrew was written right to left and most other languages were written left to right so there is definitely syllable confusion but when you see um, very similar syllables in a different order in a cognate word meaning a word in the same language or in, I'm sorry, with the same meaning but in different languages and those languages are closely related you could just imagine that the syllables were swapped and there are examples of this in some of the names of the kings in the King James Bible in a couple of them anyway probably in other names as well and I'm searching my mind to come up with an immediate example but I'm sorry I don't have one I may think of one for the the preface of the next part of this series, I'll probably try to think of a couple. And I'm I know they're there. Kanas or Kanasa signifies he departed, drew off, lay hid, seduced, slunk away. From this root comes Aknas, Kanasa and Kanus, which all signify an ape or satyrus or satyr, or any creature of the simia or ape genus. It is very remarkable also that from the same root comes canas, meaning the devil, which and and the the difference in spelling with that first canas is that the first one Clark spelled C-H-A-N-A-S and the later K-H-A-N-A-S which appellative he bears from that meaning of kanasa he drew off or seduced etc because he draws off men from righteousness seduces them from their obedience to God is it not strange that the devil and the ape should have the same name this is Adam Clark derived from the same root the same Arabic root word And that root is so very similar to the word in the text, meaning that the Arabic kanas is very similar to the Hebrew nakash. And indeed it is. It's only an inversion of the syllables. Rather than N-A-C-H-A-S, it's c h. A-N-A-S. It's an inversion of the consonants, I'm sorry. And the S and S-H in Hebrew are identified by the exact same letter. It's only the vowel pointing of the Masoretic rabbis that determines which one might be an S and which one might be an S-H and in truth they all might be full of it because they're Masoretic rabbis the vowel pointing did not exist in the ancient Hebrew Clark says after noticing that the devil and the ape have the same name or the same word represents them in Arabic derived from the same root but let us return and consider what is said of the creature in question now the Nakash was more subtle the, ro- the word Aram, more wise, cunning or prudent than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. In this account we find that whatever this Nakash was, he stood at the head of all inferior animals for wisdom and understanding, that he walked erect, for this is necessarily implied in his punishment on thy belly, i.e. on all fours shalt thou go that he was endued with the gift of speech for a conversation is he related between him and a woman and four that he was also endued with the gift of reason for we find him reasoning and disputing with Eve and five that these things were common to this creature the woman no doubt having often seen him walk erect, talk and reason and therefore she testifies no kind of surprise when he accosts her in the language related in the text and indeed from the manner in which this is introduced it appears to be only a part of a conversation that had passed between them on the occasion yes God had said etc. interrupting once more of course Clark said at the beginning of his argument that the text of Genesis should be of Genesis chapter three should be read as a narrative of the facts rather than as an allegory. Clifton and myself would argue that the text is highly allegorical although it certainly represents a historical event. Here Clark also seems to be leaning in the direction that the serpent of Genesis, chapter 3, was some sort of ape. And he describes that later. That we find impossible, since literal apes cannot speak, nor would an actual ape be imagined as an angel of light Appearing as an angel of light, as Paul referred to the seducer of Eve in two Corinthians chapter eleven, we would rather imagine for we would rather imagine other reasons for the devil and an ape sharing the same name in Arabic. Upon which we shall comment later. Continuing with Clifton's citation of Adam Clarke. Had this creature never been known to speak before his addressing the woman at this time and on this subject, it could not have failed to excite her surprise, and to have filled her with caution, though from the purity and innocence of her nature she might have been incapable of being affected with fear. Now I apprehend that none of these things can be spoken of a serpent of any species. None of them ever did or ever can walk erect he refuses to think that a serpent could possibly walk erect but on the other hand he believes that an ape once had the power of speech so there's a slight cognitive disconnect there if apes could talk then serpents could walk I mean what the hell but I'll continue with Adam Clark because he makes some very good points The tales we have had of two-footed and four-footed serpents are justly exploded by every judicious naturalist and are are utterly unworthy of credit. The very name serpent comes from serpo to creep, the Latin word serpo, and therefore to such it could be neither curse nor punishment to go on their bellies, i.e., to creep on, as they had done from their creation, and must do while race indoors." So Clark argues that it couldn't have been a literal serpent, and with that we would agree. 2. They have no organs for speech or any kind of articulate sound. They can only hiss. It is true that an ass by miraculous influence may speak, but it is not to be supposed that there was any miraculous interference here. God did not qualify this creature with speech for the occasion and it is not intimated that there was any other agent that did it on the contrary, the text intimates that speech and reason were natural to the Nakash and is it not in reference to this that the inspired penman says the Nakash was more subtle or intelligent than all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made nor can I find that the serpentine genus are remarkable for intelligence. It is true the wisdom of the serpent has passed into a proverb, but I cannot see on what it is founded, except in reference to the passage in question, where the nakash, we trans- which we translate serpent, following the Septuagint shows so much intelligence and cunning and it is very probable that our Lord alludes to this very place when he exhorts his disciples to be wise prudent or intelligent as serpents of course he alludes to this very place because he is not speaking of literal snakes phronimoi hos oi ophis, which means wise as the serpents noticing that the terms for wise and serpents are both in the plural. And it is worthy, worthy of remark that he uses the same term employed in the Septuagint text in question, ofis ein phronimotatos, fronimota, which literally means, the serpent was more wise. The serpent was more prudent or intelligent than all the beasts, etc. All these things considered, we are obliged to seek for some other word to designate the Nakash in the text than the word serpent, which on every view of the subject appears to me inefficient and a- inapplicable. Adam Clark, insisting that the text should be read as a literal, historical account of the facts of the incident insists upon a more technically correct term than serpent for the enchanter of Genesis chapter 3. Returning to the citation, we have seen above and this is where it starts to get a a little ludicrous but that's Adam Clark writing in the 18th century I believe we have seen above that kanas, aknas, and kanus signify a creature of the ape or satyr kind we have seen that the meaning of the root is he lay hid, seduced, slunk away, etc and that kanas, the same as the first of those three words, means the devil as the inspirer of evil and seducer from tr- from God and truth it therefore appears to me that a creature of the ape or uran o it's the two original words of the Alien language, Uran Utang, or Orangutan, or Orangutan, I think in, in our common vernacular, it's not really pronounced the way it's spelled. That a creature of the ape or orangutan kind is here intended, and that Satan made use of this creature as the most proper instrument for the accomplishment of his murderous purposes against the life and soul of man. Under this creature he lay hid and by this creature he seduced our first parents and drew off or slunk away from every eye but the eye of God. Such a creature answers to every part of the description in the text. It is evident from the structure of its limbs and their muscles that it might have been originally designed to walk erect, and that nothing less than a sovereign controlling power could induce them to put down hands in every respect formed like those of man, and walk like those creatures whose claw-armed paws prove them to have been designed to walk on all fours. Dr. Tyson has observed in his Anatomy of an Orangutan, that the seminal vessels pass between the two coats of the peritoneum to the scrotum, as in man. Hence he argues that this creature was designed to walk erect, as it is otherwise in all quadrupeds. The subtlety, cunning, endlessly varied pranks and tricks of these creatures show them, even now, to be more subtle and more intelligent than any other creature, man alone excepted being obliged now to walk on all fours and gather their food from the ground they are literally obliged to eat the dust and though exceedingly cunning and careful in a variety of instances to separate that part which is wholesome and proper for food from that which is not so in the article of cleanliness they are all lost they are lost to all sense I'm sorry of propriety and though they have every means in their power of cleansing the ailments, they gather off the ground, the aliments, and from among the dust, they, yet they never in their savage state make any use of, except a slight rub against their side, or with one of their hands, more to see what the article is than to cleanse it. Add to this their utter aversion to walk upright. It requires the utmost discipline to bring them to it and scarcely anything irritates them more than to be obliged to do it. Long observation on some of these animals enables me to state these facts. So Clark is arguing strongly that the the Nakash serpent of Genesis chapter 3 was really an orangutan and that's kind of nuts in my opinion however Clark's evidence is useful for other purposes that are closer to the truth and Clifton certainly realized that which is the reason why he used this long citation even with its ridiculous aspects here we shall interrupt Clark once more he cannot prove that the orangutan ever walked upright, but only conjectures from the seminal vessels alone that it was designed to walk upright in spite of many biological factors that refute that assertion. He also insists that the orangutan answers to every part of the description in the text, meaning the text of Genesis 3, while ignoring the part in verse 6 which says and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise she took fruit thereof she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat but we cannot imagine that the orangutan is an object or is Possibly an object of such desire. So we cannot agree with Clark's findings in reference to... So we can agree, I'm sorry, with Clark's findings in reference to language, but we cannot agree with his conclusions. For now, he himself continues in regard to this same thing. Should any person who may read this note object against my conclusions because they are apparently derived from an Arabic word which is not exactly similar to the Hebrew though to those who understand both languages the similarity will be striking yet as I do not insist on the identity of the terms though important consequences have been derived from less likely etymologies he is welcome to throw out the whole of the account he may then take up the hebrew root only which signifies to gaze to view attentively attentively to pry into inquire narrowly etc and consider the passage that appears to compare the nakash to the babbler in ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 11 and he will soon find if he has any acquaintance with creatures of this genus that for earnest, attentive watching, looking, etc. and for chattering or babbling. They have no fellows in the animal world. So Clark puts forth a second argument that this creature in Genesis 3 just had to be the orangutan. He says indeed the ability and propensity to chatter is all they have left. According to the above hypothesis of their original gift of speech of which I suppose them to have been deprived at the fall as a part of their punishment but of course it was not stated to be part of their punishment note here that Clark admits that his conclusion is predicated upon the idea that to find the identity of this serpent creature he is limited to the animal world. But the revelation of Christ informs us that the serpent was a fallen angel. So Clark arrived at an errant conclusion, not having considered all of the necessary facts. But we shall arrive at a different and better one. With this we have to wonder, did Clark ever read the New Testament? was Adam Clark a Jew? I don't know because as far as I'm concerned any Christian interpreter should have at least read the New Testament and only a Jew would never read the New Testament but the bottom line even if Clark isn't a Jew and by all other measures he appears to be an Englishman the bottom line is that we cannot interpret Genesis by itself because Jesus Christ Yahshua Christ informs us that he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world interpreting Genesis by itself is necessarily attempting to interpret an incomplete account because Yahweh purposely kept something secret from the beginning of the world, so that Christ could reveal them. For now, Clarke continues, I have spent a longer time on this subject because it is exceedingly obscure, because no interpretation hitherto given of it has afforded me the smallest satisfaction because i think the above mode of accounting for every part of the whole transaction which he didn't really do is consistent and satisfactory and in my opinion removes many embarrassments and solves the chief difficulties i think it can be i think it can be no solid objection to the above mode of solution that satan in different parts of the new testament is called the serpent the serpent that deceived Eve by his subtlety the old serpent etc for we have already seen that the new testament writers borrowed the word from the septuagint and the septuagint themselves use it in a vast variety and latitude of meaning and surely the uranutang orangutan orangutang however you want to pronounce it it drives me nuts is as likely to be the animal in question as Nikash and ophis are likely to mean at once a snake, a crocodile, a hippopotamus, fornication, a chain, a pair of fetters, a piece of brass, a piece of steel, and a conjurer. For we have seen above all that these are acceptations of the original word. Clark insists that crocodile and hippopotamus are viable translations of Nakash only because he does not understand the allegorical meaning of certain passages. We are certain that they are not viable translations of the word because the allegorical significance of the term is quite different than Clark had imagined. Now to read Clifton's citation of Clark to its conclusion besides the New Testament writers seem to lose sight of the animal or instrument used on the occasion and speak only of Satan himself as the cause of the transgression and the instrument of all evil if Clark read the revelation he rejects it If, however, any person should choose to differ from the opinion stated above, he is at perfect liberty to do so. I make it no article of faith, nor of Christian communion. I crave the same liberty to judge for myself that I give it to others, to that I give to others, to which every man has an indisputable right and I hope no man will call me a heretic for departing in this respect from the common opinion which appears to me to be so embarrassed as to be altogether unintelligible and Clifton has a note that's the end of his quote from Adam Clark I believe it's Clark's interpretation which is really embarrassing now Clifton himself responds to Clark and he says while I believe that this is a valuable contribution on the part of Adam Clark I am not entirely in agreement with him especially I do not accept the idea that Nakash may have been only an agent for Satan in the seduction of Eve where Clark asks the question who was the agent employed in the seduction of our first parents What the serious Bible scholar must understand is that the Hebrew, as we have it in our Bible, doesn't represent the complete Hebrew language. Whenever one is consulting Strong's Concordance on any one word, and it says that it's from another Strong's number, or from a word at another Strong's number, that word is considered the root word of the word one is referencing some of the Hebrew root words are known and others are not strong was a Hebrew scholar and was aware of this and that is why he will direct the reader to the root word but they but when they, meaning Hebrew scholars in general, can't find the origin of the root word in the Hebrew, they will go to Arabic because it is a similar language and has some of the missing root words. Strong's often has, a, has the phrase from an unused root in his definitions. This is simply what Adam Clark was doing, and he did a superb job of it. McClintock and Strong's Cyclopedia states, It is well known that after the Jews or Judahites returned from the captivity of Babylon, having lost in great measure the familiar knowledge of the ancient Hebrew, the readings from the books of Moses in the synagogues of Palestine were explained to them in the Chaldaic tongue, meaning Aramaic thus we can begin to see why some of the hebrew root words were lost also we can begin to comprehend why adam clark investigated the arabic language to clarify genesis chapter three verse one on the word serpent and the phrase beast of the field inasmuch as genesis three fifteen speaks in part and between thy the serpent seed cain and his offspring were the direct descendants of satan not through some kind of third-party agent. In other words, Clifton's arguing that the serpent had seed, the nakash had seed, so the nakash was not merely an agent for some other party which seduced Eve. And that is correct. With this paper, I will show how Clark is in agreement with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And although Clark is surely incorrect about a third-party agent seducing Eve, <clears throat> we must seriously consider his equating satyrus or a satyr, ape, and orangutan with the serpent and beast of the field at Genesis 3:1. Surely the phrase "beast of the field" is a foundational Hebrew idiom for the existence of the non-white peoples who were not created by the Almighty, but are a product of fallen angel-kind mixed with animal-kind. And the ape family are four-footed quadrupeds, as are the animals classified as behemoth in the many, but not all, passages where the non-white races are mentioned, Before we continue, I would like to support the statement that the Hebrew language as we can know it is far from complete because no book not even the Bible unless it is specialized such as a dictionary or encyclopedia uses a vocabulary which encompasses the entire lexicon of a language. The Septuagint employs a lexicon of nearly 14,000 words, meaning that there's about 14,000 different Greek words which appear in the Septuagint if the Bible works software is correct and the New Testament employs a lexicon of around 5,400 words Greek words or different Greek words only about four thousand words are common to both the New Testament and the Greek Old Testament in the Septuagint Strong's Hebrew Lexicon has not quite 8700 entries I think it's 8676 or something like that, 74 which represent the vocabulary of the Hebrew Old Testament. From the large collection of surviving Greek literature, we can understand the meanings of the more than 15,000 words which appear in the Greek scriptures, Old and New Testament. But we also have the use and meanings of many more thousands of words which were not used in the scriptures we do not have that luxury for Old Testament Hebrew since there is very little surviving Hebrew literature of any great antiquity outside of the Old Testament there is some apocryphal literature but it's really, most of it's not as old as it claims to be. And Hebrew copies are often missing or never even existed. So to understand the shades of meaning or the root origins of some words, it often helps to look at the literature of related languages, such as Aramaic, or Akkadian, the language of the Assyrians, or in this case, even Arabic. I would also assert that the use of the words kanas, aknas, and kanus to describe both apes and satyrs, as Adam Clark has explained, and the further use of kanas to describe either ape or devil are not necessarily original to whatever original Adamic language it was that Adam and Eve had spoken. The Arabic tongue as it exists now is not even original to the time of Moses who wrote these accounts circa 1450 BC nor is it even to the time of Ezra who was writing around 450 BC. The development of Arabic as a distinct language is not fully evident in history until around the second century BC. Now there are claims that it is older, but those claims are based on very thin evidence. However, Arabic has its origins in Aramaic or in older variations which are related to Hebrew and Aramaic. So for that reason, Root meanings of words in Arabic can indeed have some value when assessing the possible root meanings of Hebrew words. The original Arab tribes were white Shemites and Hamites, who became mingled with one another and with the apparently white Canaanite bastards in the lands to the east and south of the Israelites they only became brown later in their history as they mingled in turn with other non-white races it is very likely likely that they or the original authors of the language they maintained had later equated apes to devils and satyrs simply because they understood that the ape-like non adamic races were devils and satyrs which are hybrid human animal creatures from Greek mythology since the word satyr has a Hebrew root a Hebrew origination it's not a Greek word it is all the more likely that this is true so for that reason the word kanas can describe either an ape or a devil now we shall proceed with clifton's paper and his own conclusion where he offers a concise quotation from a portion of the enoch literature which speaks about the sins of the fallen angels from the book the dead sea scrolls a new translation by michael wise martin abegg junior and edward cook On page 247, a translation of the scroll known as 1Q23, fragments 1 and 6. Clifton only reads a few short verses. 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams of the flock, 200 goats, 200 beasts of the field from every animal, from every bird for miscegenation and now Clifton comments these fragments are from the oldest known manuscripts of the Book of Giants reputedly written by Enoch whom we are told walked with God and he was not for God took him citing Genesis 524 being found among early manuscripts dating before the time of Christ is sufficient evidence that they were considered vitally important to the text by the keepers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If this text does anything for us, it also demonstrates that the term beast of the field referred to animals and not to so-called people. So Clifton continues, even more solemn evidence can be found in the book The Dead Sea Scrolls translated by Florentino Garcia Martinez, where on page 260 he translates line line 5 of that same fragment 1Q23 as of dilute wine 6000 of and says as many of us know most wine is red in color and therefore would be number 119 in the Hebrew Strong's Concordance and is the exact same Hebrew as for Adaman or number 120 in fact, 119, 120, 121 are all the same exact Hebrew word, except 119 is a verb, 120 a noun, and 120 is usually a pronoun understood as a proper name. Now, actually, Clifton is apologizing for Martinez, but this is really an error. Martinez missed the meaning of the original text as it was properly translated by wise abeg and cook in the context of taking all these animals for mixing they correctly write miscegenation i don't think martinez understood the context so he tried to use a word which means miscegenation or or mixing of the seed of one kind with another kind he tried to take it and and make it refer to the mixing of wine with water, evidently diluted wine, I think Martinez was totally out of touch with what Enoch was really saying. Clifton continues, or concludes, Adam Clark is not the only one to declare that Seder means eight. From a, le- a Greek-English lexicon by Liddell and Scott on page 1232, on the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word satyr, we find the following definition. Hono Cantora, or Hono male or female. A kind of talus ape. A kind of demon haunting wild places. It appears in the Septuagint in Isaiah chapters 13 and 34. It was used by a secular Greek writer, Ahelion. For Ahelion, they cite the use of a tailless ape. Clifton says, notice especially Isaiah thirty-four fourteen. What better description could be given of a negroid than a tailless ape and we will cite isaiah thirty four fourteen the wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island and the satyr shall cry to his fellow the screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest now that screech owl is from a quite famous Hebrew word, Lilith. Lilith being supposed to be an ancient female demon and that's translated, scree- or actually mistranslated, I believe, because I believe it should be Lilith Seder, and I'm sorry, Screech Owl it's translated as Screech Owl in the Old Testament copies of Isaiah. And that word Seder, if we resort to the Septuagint Greek, is actually the word Honokantaris. Even though the word Honokantaris refers to a it literally means an ass centaur or a donkey centaur notice that the centaur is um, traditionally a beast that's half horse and half man the Honocentaurus is an ass or a donkey centaur, right? Even though the word Honokintaris is an ass centaur or a donkey centaur, it was imagined to represent ape-like hybrids and demons. So here we have a second witness to Adam Clark's assessment of the significance of this that this Arabic kanas, which they used to dis, to translate the Hebrew word nakash, and which can mean either ape or devil. So we see that these centaurs and satyrs and honokentaroi or donkey centaurs were also seen to be devils or demons these other races of so-called people are indeed talus apes and they are indeed related to devils that is the conclusion to which Clifton would like us to come assessing this information and that I believe is the correct conclusion that there's definitely a relationship between these entities which was expressed of which we have remnant expressions in our ancient literature and these are basically remnant expressions that these um, Greek myths and these word meanings in Arabic and Hebrew thank you for listening praise Yahweh the God of Israel and good night